When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Having a classic case of the Mondays. Yeah. Welcome in to an episode of DNVR Avalanche at the Ring Podcast. I'm Megan Ingley, joined by Jesse Montano in Seattle ahead of Game 4 t- tonight. My brain yes. short-circuited <laughs> that that was actually happening tonight. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm good. I'll be honest. When I said I'm ready to go, I didn't realize we were like ready to go. That was you guys are on top of it today. So I got to catch up. I got to get on your guys level. Uh, no, I'm good, man. It's uh, I was hoping to that the, the camera would work a little bit better in the background. Got a nice view of the Space Needle here. Um, so it's it's a it's a good day here in Seattle. It's a little rainy, a little gloomy. We got morning skate here in about two hours. Um, so I'm doing great. How are how are things back home? I've been working on my playoff beard. I don't think it's coming in as nicely <laughs> as yours is right now. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. You, uh, this doesn't look too great right now. I got to get it cleaned up a bit. I loved Frankie's comments about having the media that Bennett reported oh. grow playoff yeah. beards. So we actually did it last year. I don't know if you remember. I thought we had a super chat that, that asked us to do it. So uh at least me and aj i don't remember if rudo did it uh but we actually did it last year and i remember by the end i was like <sighs> we were all hoping they would go this far but i wasn't fully banking on going this far and keeping this a beard, beard that long yeah yeah i was like and now this beard's out of control but uh no yeah i'm i'm with frankie it's uh it's nice everyone should do it and, and yours is coming in great Megan. thank you i've been working <laughs> on it since october <laughs> i think you should go with maybe uh playoff um you didn't call them curls what'd you call them i don't mini braids mini braids braids. i could do mini braids yeah just go mini braids the entire time there's something powerful about it i'm on board yeah exactly yeah well kicking off today's show it seems like we have trended in starting each show by talking about gabriel landeskog so we can continue doing that (laughs) i think the news from this week that stood out to a lot of people, the fan base, the players, is Gabriel Landeskog's presence in the room. And I wanted to talk about it a little bit. And honestly, we'll talk about a little bit about the value that we think it brings to this group, but we'll also just throw it to some clips of players talking about how much it is meant to have Landeskog in the room as well. I think that they could probably speak to that better than you or I could, but it was a nice revelation to discover that after some of the difficulties of game one, Landeskog was in the room in between periods addressing the team. And I think there's a couple of things we could talk about when it comes to this too. First, starting with the fact that Jared Bednar, he's not really in the room during intermission. He addresses the team, he gives a little bit of messaging, and then he leaves it to the team to discuss what they need to, to regroup as necessary before the next period. And I think that's especially interesting after a game like game one or during a game like game one where the group didn't quite look like themselves and a coach could probably have panicked and tried to meddle in between periods and supervise that in some degree. But I think it shows a display of trust that he still throws it to the leadership in the room to handle intermission, even when the team was looking not quite like themselves the way that they did in game one. Well, it's, it's funny, Megan, because, and I actually even heard people talk about it last night um, in the post-game show of Edmonton, L.A. I don't know if you caught that game, uh, but L.A. goes up 3 nothing in the first period, 
Edmonton, I mean, like they, they are on the ropes, right? They're down two to one in the series. Uh, and, and Edmonton ends up coming back and having a big push. And they talked about it in the post game. Man, I wonder if Jay Woodcroft went in there and if he was just kicking over trash cans left and right. Well, Megan, we talked about that uh, on, what was it, Tuesday? Uh, whatever day game two was, right? That first period ends and we were all up in the press box and, you know, we were saying like, holy shit, we know Jerry Bednar doesn't really get involved in intermissions, but he might be in there peeling paint off the walls. Uh, you know, it, it was that bad. But come to find out after, to your point, Look, he said that he had a couple of like little X's and O's things that he laid out right at the start of intermission. But otherwise, like you said, he turned that room over to uh, to the players inside of it. And that's what <clears throat> even through three games. And obviously, we're going to see what happens tonight. You know, I'm expecting a big push from Seattle. They're at home. I think they want to get a win, uh, you know, in front of their home crowd. Uh, and, and, and look, you're going into game four. The series is always two to one going into game four. So someone's looking to either avoid going down three to one uh, or get back into the series two, two. So we'll see what happens tonight. But what we saw in game two there relative to what you're talking about with the way that this group handles themselves in the locker room, and the trust that the coaching staff has, that is why championship teams, you know, teams that, that, that have kind of been there, done that are so hard to pick against because it's not just about the talent that's on the ice, the, 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 the four lines that you're rolling. There's so much that goes into it. The, the, the no panic, the kind of being able to stay level-headed, taking a step back, looking at the situation, um, saying we've been here before, take a deep breath. And that's what Evan Rodriguez talked to us about. That kind of was the message after that first period um, in, in game two was everybody calm down, right? It wasn't, we need to kick, we need to scream, we need to yell. It was, take a deep breath. We're not playing to our standard. And where Gabe Landeskog comes into all of this, and I thought it was a really interesting comment that Jared Bednar made after the game was, he can watch it, or he's watching the game right now, and, and I believe he's up in the press box watching. But he said, he's not as emotionally invested in, you know, he's not in the heat of competition. He's not, you know, down there battling. So he can maybe take an extra beat and say, this is what I'm seeing. This is what you guys are doing. This is where we're, you know, running around getting out of position. This is where we're, you know, <laughs> pick whatever your issues were, you know, with that first period in game two. And he can just kind of bring a different level of calming presence, right? Because normally he is a calming presence. He's a leader. He's all of that. But right now he's even a step removed. And so I, I just think that maybe we undervalued what all he can bring to this. I mean, Megan, he's almost functioning as another coach right now for the abs. And, and, you know, I don't know if this is where you're going. I hate to jump the gun on you, but he has now spent multiple days on the ice with the team here in Seattle and again, not running through drills, not pushing himself, not rehabbing that knee, but really almost acting more like a coach. He's out there, you know, distributing pucks, gathering pucks, talking to guys in between drills, talking, you know, kind of gassing the guys up, you know, if they score on the power play, you know, kind of run through things like that, um, talking to guys about what he's seeing. And it's just adding a different level. And, and I mentioned, um, I believe it was to Evan Rowell, uh, Colorado Hockey Now, while we were out here, I said, with every win that the Abs get, this is going to be a more and more interesting storyline for me to follow. Because, uh, again, you, it almost really feels like you've picked up another coach in game, Gabe Landeskog here with his leadership and, and, and what he's able to kind of communicate to the team. Absolutely, because after his presser, there was uncertainty surrounding what his involvement would look like, how little or how much, because he is still going to seek necessary second opinions and consults in terms of his own personal treatment that I'm sure if it asked for him to step away at any point to pursue that he would at least that's the belief at the time but he was in the room starting game one and I think that's interesting because obviously game one the outcome was not what the apps would have expected so it's not a fix-all but 
the way in which Jared Bednar and Gabriel Landeskog blur the lines between player and coach, because Bednar has described why Gabriel Landeskog is so special as leader is because he acts as a second coach. And yeah. Jared Bednar, as a coach, has been described as being especially apt at coaching because yeah. he's like a player. And yeah, I think it's the interesting boys, yeah. the way these two complement one another and the component of Landeskog not having the same level of on-ice emotional investment, but still very much an investment in this team, that I think your interview with EJ revealed this in a fun way, that yeah. Landeskog might not have been sure how much to be involved, but this was something the group wanted out of him. This was something Eric Johnson advocated for, and I think it has captured the way this leadership group operates pretty well. There's still a lot of things I'd be curious to learn about, but there's several voices in the room. Cause I, I first honestly learned about this after game one from Ben Myers. I was asking him about the messaging in the room and what voices stepped up. And he mentioned Nate, which I think is interesting because I know Nate isn't quite the emotional or vocal leader, but I think in game one, I could imagine he had some things to say that were important in addressing the group. But this is where Landeskog came to play, that Landeskog also addressed the team after game or like in between periods for game one. And I think what we see in game two, the flip that switches in that second period is you want to see the team turn the page on game one, but you also want to see them turn the page even quicker on in-game events within a game. And I think that they did this very well in game two, and it's a testament to the experience of this group. So the, the experience of this group is something that I, I want to keep touching on here because I, I think it's I, – I don't want to say maybe we underrated it a bit, uh, you, you know, coming into these playoffs. And, and look, they're up two to one. The series is far from over. So I'm, I'm not going to start saying that, you know, oh, the experience, they've got it in the bag. You know, we let's see what happens tonight first, you know. But <clears throat> going back to what you're talking about, so there was a couple different things that stuck out to me following that series of events that, that you're kind of talking about here, Megan. One was during the Gabe Landeskog press conference where he said, I'm going to be as involved or not involved as they want. One, I remember that in the moment striking me as like, wow, that's a great leadership moment, right? Knowing that, hey, I'm not just going to insert myself. Uh, yes, I'm the leader of this group, but I'm in a different situation that I was that I've ever been. You know, I'm not ready to play and in fact i'm shutting myself down i'm not even working towards getting back into the lineup so he said hey look I, i'm going to give these guys the courtesy of telling me what do they want they may not want me in there someone who's not playing someone who's not like we said a minute ago you know in the moment in the in the battle in the trenches with them because healthy scratches typically don't have much of a role in the locker room a lot of times they're not even in the locker room during intermission um so that's number one. Number two was, uh, like you mentioned, I, t I spoke with Eric Johnson, um, and he said that when it, Gabe Landeskog came to him and said, well, do you guys want me in the room? I'll, I'll only be around if you guys want me. That He said, yes, of course we do. So I, I want to kind of make the assertion here that let's keep in mind that I, I don't necessarily think this is something where it's like, Gabe Landeskog is entering the locker room just to address them. Like, I think what's making this so fascinating and such an interesting storyline, at least for me, is the fact that he's trying to really act like not nothing's changed, but he's trying to fill the same role that he would if he was on the ice, if he was in the game, if he was in the lineup. You know, he's just trying to provide that same leadership and, and, and interject when he can, interject when he thinks he should, interject when he thinks it's needed, but otherwise just kind of have his presence around because I, I love what you said a minute ago about it's this really funny, Gabe Landeskog's a captain, but Jared Bednar is acknowledged. He's kind of like an extra coach. Jared Bednar is the coach, and yet the team is acknowledged. He's really kind of just one of the boys in the locker room. So it's this really interesting um, dynamic that I think – is, is woven into the culture that we talk so much about with this team and, and, and what makes them so successful. Um, and, you know, the, the, the type of players that they target, you know, high character guys, guys that are, as you said, emotionally capable of turning that page, not just from game to game, but from period to period. Or as, you know, Jerry Bednar confirmed to you the other day, they still embrace the five-minute segment to five-minute segment, uh, you know, model. And, and so it's just really interesting because – Every time I hear a story about Gabe Landeskog, I'm more and more impressed by his leadership. 
And I thought just him saying, I'll let them tell me what they want. And it sounds like what really everyone is in favor of is we want you to have the same role that you would always have. That's what we find most valuable about you. And Megan, you and I talked about it on the show a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, when he officially shut himself down, that was one of the parts that we said, man, they might really, that might be what they really miss is just that emotional presence that he brings. Um, and it sounds like he's doing his best um, to, to continue to bring that and, and, and the, the team is benefiting from it. Uh, you know, I think we've seen in two straight games now. I just wanted to ask you about uh, Gabe. I know you guys are obviously very close and with you know him not playing, but I just wanted to know a handful of you guys talked about him kind of talking, speaking up in the locker room. Obviously, he's out there for the skate, just kind of being a part of it. How much does that help just to have him around and feel as much like part of the group as possible? Yeah, I mean, I know he, he said, you know, he didn't want to be a distraction, but I, I mean, I personally just told him, like, if you want to come in the locker room between periods, like, please do. Like, we obviously respect what he has to say and just his presence in general. And, um, yeah, just... Uh, you know, he's watching from up top so he can offer some insights and, um, you know, the game is a lot slower from uh, the press box where he's been sitting. So you can kind of see things that you don't see right at ice level where it's happening a lot faster. So um, I think he can be pretty valuable for us right now. And, you know, he's on the ice today with us just to have fun, you know, kind of, you know, a little mental uh, mental break for him just to get out there. and. Um, yeah, anytime he's around, it's going to be very beneficial. So it's it's great it's great that he's still you know part of the team and um, doing all he can, even though he's not on the ice. Yeah, I think it's uh, you know it's kind of it's nice to have him around. Obviously, he's, he's such a presence in the room, and even when he's not playing, um, you know, have him kind of as an eye in the sky that's um, in the room, and he obviously has a good feel for this group. So. Um, you know, obviously we, we see it as, as one thing uh, when you're in the game, but to see it uh, from a different perspective for him to come in and kind of, you know, relate to us that message sometimes, it's nice. And um, I think he just said that, you know, be a bit more connected and, and find a bit more jump here. And um, yeah, that was kind of a bottom line for us. His presence in the room is is great. Um, you know, it's, it's a great capacity to have him in right now. You know, obviously we'd like to have him soon up for us, but... Um, that's not an option, so just to have him around, his presence is huge. He, he's the leader of the room, uh, whether he's playing or not. I think guys just respect his voice so much, and he's got a calming presence in situations where we need to be calm and um, in other situations when we need maybe, maybe a little kick, kick in the butt. He's there for us as well. So he was just doing a really good job of trying to keep things positive and focus on what we can control and just starting off with a better second period. The other part in this is the sacrifice or, or maybe just the difficulty that might impose on Landeskog to be around the team and involved, but not able to be on the ice and participating as a player. I think that's probably really challenging for him and speaks to his character in ways that he still identifies as the captain and the leader of this group. And even though it might be difficult on him to be around, but not able to play, he still wants to be there because the players asked him to. And I have to imagine that's really challenging. And and because and, I agree with you, Megan, wholeheartedly. You know, we were making the it's not a joke, but you know, we were making the comments just yesterday that like this dude's been he's had a he's had a hockey based routine since he was what five probably, uh, you, you know, and, and then especially once he got up, no joke. This is what makes hockey different than other sports, and 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 not a lot of people notice this or, or realize this, but starting at ten. Genuinely, 10 years old, Gabe Landeskog probably had like a pretty regimented going to the rink, go to the gym, you know, work on your mechanics. Probably five, six days a week he had he had a schedule like that. Uh, I mean, he moved to the North America when he was, I believe, 14, maybe 15, uh, you know, to play junior hockey and, and things like that. So, I mean, he's 30 years old now. This has been what he knows. He knows having a routine and being around the boys. And like you said, being, you know, building towards playing a game and getting up for game night and things like that. He's about to go one full year without doing that. And he spent the vast, vast, vast majority of that year separated from the team. A lot of times not even in the same state as where the team was. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's been a very out of the ordinary year for him. Um, so as as much i completely agree with you as much as i think this is probably still really hard on him it's got to help at least just a little bit 
to be able to put on the practice gear and jump out there and just be on the ice with the boys talking shit, you know, laughing, cracking jokes, celebrating, you know, funny goals and in practice and things like that. And um, like that, that does just have to help the morale side. And then maybe he does get to get that adrenaline going a little bit when, you know, in the locker room, talking to the team. But again, I don't want to undersell that he's coming down from the press box. And Eric Johnson mentioned it, you know, in that interview where he says the game's just a little bit slower up there. He can see things develop a little bit better. He can see where we're breaking down. And because he's got such an intimate understanding of what that's supposed to look like, he just provides a different level of context. Um, so, like I said, let's see what happens tonight. Let's see what happens in this series before we get maybe too carried away with this. But I did mention to someone um, yesterday, or excuse me, after game uh, three, if they can go on any level of a run here, right? I'm not even necessarily saying win it again, but if they can go a couple rounds deep, this has to be a storyline that I think we follow at least from arm's length, right? Because it's just kind of a unique situation. Um, and, and and I think it could have an underrated kind of sneaky impact on, on what this team's able to accomplish. Absolutely. And I, I think you make a great point that returning to some semblance of that routine is probably helpful in ways. And to be able to contribute in a way too through his leadership is probably also helpful to have a hand in what's going 100%. on. And we'll definitely follow along with it. I think it's a great transition, too, into talking about this Seattle-Colorado series so far and our observations about it, sort of our anticipation of what's to come next. Um, I've really enjoyed this series so far. I know we've talked about it a little bit together, too, but haven't really gotten to reconvene since Game 3, which was a wonderful game. What was the atmosphere like at Climate Pledge Arena? It was awesome. It was great, Megan. Honestly, like a, a big, I, I've always heard Seattle sports fans are great. I got to be here last year uh, for the Avs first ever game against the Kraken. And it was, it was good, you know, it was awesome, but um, it, it really was, it was an electric atmosphere in there. People were fired up. There was uh, you know, Pete Carroll, the Seahawks coach uh, was, uh, was in the building and they, they kind of had him get the fans riled up. Uh, they had, uh, Seattle ownership that was down there kind of, you know, making a statement about like, Hey, this is the first game. Let's go. Let's, let's crank it up a level here. And, um, so, you know, everyone was involved and, and the crowd was into it. Uh, I'll be honest when Maddie Benier scored that, that second goal in 19 seconds to tie the game, I had a, Oh boy, here we go. Like, let's hold on because I mean, the roof was about to come off that place. It was, uh, it was loud. The fans were into it. And uh, it, it, it was a cool atmosphere, I won't, I won't lie. It was, it was electric in there, but credit to the abs. You know, we talked about that. Uh, I, excuse me, I talked about that with a couple of the players um, that morning about how much do you maybe kind of feed off of that? How much do you like going into a hostile environment? And I wasn't, I didn't get it, uh, I, I didn't walk up and, and, and get it on the record quick enough. Some other guys were talking to Bo about it and he kind of got this like, little smirk on his face. He's like, I love it. I love going into a place like that. And, and, you know, Evan Rodriguez talked about like you feed off of wanting to silence the, the crowd, right? You, you want to shut them down. You want to take that, you know, kind of that, that excitement out of it for them. Um, and that's exactly what the Avs did twice in that game. Uh, we're able to just completely eliminate the crowd uh, through, through their play and, and, and through some timely goal scoring. Uh, Alexander Georgiev, you know, with a massive save, uh, I believe it was at the end of the second, uh, I believe, right? That three-on-one that came at the end of the second period. Oh, I think yeah, it I was did. at the end of the second. Yeah, it was. I had to I had to work through which end of the ice they were on when I watched it uh, in my head. But yeah, at the end of the second period, you know, um, that's a huge stop that, that just keeps the crowd from being able to, you know, take it to that next level and them carrying a lead into the third period, things like that. So the Avs were able to kind of silence that crowd a bit, which is a unique playoff atmosphere in its in and of itself, right? That that electricity to dead quiet. And that's what you saw again at the end of that first period with the Nathan McKinnon breakaway. The crowd was into it. They had scored first. They were going nuts. Even when the Avs tied it, it was like, okay, well, we're tied at the end of the first Nathan McKinnon scores with less than a minute left, and you just feel the air leave the building. Like I said, that's a uniquely NHL playoff experience as well. So uh, great atmosphere in there. 
if you're a, if you're a neutral fan or an Avs fan, it was an unbelievable atmosphere in there all night. If you're a Kraken fan, it was a fun atmosphere for a lot of it, but definitely ended with a bit of a dud. I think, too, looking at the crowd element in Game 2, because the crowd at Colorado didn't completely silence after even a difficult first period, I think it helped for Colorado players to get back in it into that second period, 100%. that the crowd didn't completely go away. Ab- Megan, absolutely. So I actually, I talked to my mom uh, after the game. I always, I always call my mom on the way home from, from games down at ball. Uh, and I was telling her exactly that that I said the crowd in the second period at Ball Arena for game two, I, I, the words I used, I said, I was surprised. The abs looked terrible in that first period. Absolutely horrible. And they're behind in the game by two goals. I said, I, I thought the crowd was just going to kind of pack it up and go home. You know, not physically go home, but really kind of just fold it in. But I, I said I, I was surprised and I was impressed at how much they kind of stayed in the game and they stayed up and they stayed excited. Um, and I, I mentioned exactly what you just said. I, I thought it helped the Avs kind of get back into things a bit. And I even tweeted out during game two, I said, the crowd is still in it. The abs have to give them something here. It was within two minutes of me sending that tweet. Actually, it was within like five seconds of me sending that tweet. Arturi Lekkinen scored. And then it was about 90 seconds later of real time. Uh, Val Nachushkin scores on the breakaway. Place just goes, you know, erupts. Uh, they're going nuts. And, and, and I'm fully with you. I think that helped get the abs back in that game. Um, and in a weird way, like I just feel like that's, a, again, another and this is going to be a major stretch and people are going to roll their eyes and maybe even turn this podcast off at this point. Cause I'm just going too far, but like there's almost even a little bit of like been there, done that to the crowd, right? The abs are down two nothing Colorado crowd doesn't really care. They're having fun. It's a playoff game. They know the intensity is still up. Ah, eh, our team's a first seed. We'll win some games. We'll get back in it. So they can just kind of stay in it, stay a little bit more fast and loose as were this crowd here, like they wanted to celebrate. They wanted that first home game win. Um, you know, it, it almost kind of reminded me of that, the game five of the Stanley Cup final last year, where I remember feeling at Ball Arena, there was a tension in the crowd, right? There was a nervousness in the crowd. Everyone was just waiting. They wanted the puck to go in so bad. And every time it didn't, there was just this brutal letdown. That was a little bit how it felt in there. So when the abs stretched that lead to two in the third period, crowd packed it in. They basically, you know, that was it. They were done. Air was out of the building. Seattle never really was able to generate anything. And, you know, we'll see you later. Um, so it, it is just funny that, like, I, I would almost even say, like, you can feel that kind of, like, yeah, we've been here in the playoffs before from the crowd back home. And that's something that, that this building doesn't really have. I think it's an interesting comparison to game five of last year because I remember that feeling in the city very well, the yeah. tension you describe. And I wonder if some of that tension you're describing is similar to what the Avs experienced in game one when they gripped their sticks too tightly and were in their heads a little bit too much. And we're probably focusing on this end goal of we want to do this again a little too much without reflecting on the journey it will take to get there and how different it's going to be compared to last year. And I think letting loose a little bit, they've talked about it too, how much that helped them to return back to themselves. And I like how you mentioned in the game two, leading up to the Autori Lekkonen goal, you felt that the Avs were still in it because I think it was building up to that point before Lekkonen scores the goal. You start to see the passes connecting a little bit more. They're establishing the zone a lot better, controlling their zone time. And you start to see it building, and I think that's where this five-minute shift-by-shift component is realized. You see it happening in real time that they're building their way back to themselves shift-by-shift, shift. and so it results in the Artery Lekkonen goal, but I believe it starts before that, and I think it's because of a team that has a really strong identity. They kind of forgot who they were for a game, but only a game, and they start to build it back shift by shift and they're able to turn that around in the span of a period in game two. 
I think is where we can reintroduce talking about the experience of this group because I think Seattle has come with a very good game plan. It is solid. It is competitive. It is hard to play against because one thing Seattle definitely has and will continue to have is depth scoring. You look throughout the lineup, they're contributing in different ways. The Owls can count on that line by line, which is going to mean then shift by shift, everybody's going to be challenged. This is a team that comes out the gate hungry. Like Seattle starts their periods very well and they apply a heavy forecheck, which is difficult to defend against. Um, And then they also just work the abs off the puck in their own end very well as well. And so where I'm going with this is what the abs have though, that is not really something that Seattle can factor into their game plan is the experience of the avalanche group, because that adds a layer of mental toughness that there isn't much you can do about. So Megan, you and I were talking um, just before the end of the first period of game two. And I made the comment and, and you agreed and, and we kind of went down this path, you know, this conversation of, I said, the abs look like the less experienced team right now. And that was what was concerning uh, through game one and into game two was I said, the, the abs look like a team who's trying to play playoff hockey, you know, skating fast, hitting guys, you know, banging bodies, finishing checks. But what I said was concerning was they're not doing any of it with a purpose. They're just kind of flying around out there. They're, they're leaving, you know, the a defensive post to go make a hit that really doesn't affect the play at all, doesn't benefit anything, and now you're just kind of out of position. They weren't doing anything meaningful, and it was making Seattle look really good. The playoffs are... Again, a unique time. The NHL playoffs are a unique thing in sports. The the intensity, I truly do believe, is higher in an NHL playoff game than in any other, you know, for one of the four major pro sports. It's because of how fast it moves, because of how quickly things change, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need to fully get into that right now. And so it's easy for inexperienced teams to kind of get caught up in the moment and, and, and start running around and doing things that really aren't effective, right? Even though, yes, you're doing them intensely, they're not really effective. And I felt like that was what the abs are doing. And, and you're supposed to be able to lean on the experience. And that's why I think so many people picked the abs kind of handily coming into this series and maybe didn't foresee as, as much of a fight that, that Seattle was going to put up. And I think a lot of that comes down to people are like, well, the abs will just kind of, you know, their experience will take over. They'll be able to stay calm and stay in these games. And, and I, I think you're right. Like it was, they weren't doing that. They weren't staying calm, especially in that game one. They, they weren't able to reset, uh, you know, and say, hey, everyone take a deep breath and whatever. I think they got caught up in the moment a bit. And if I'm being honest, and you'll never get any of them to admit this, I think maybe the players weren't expecting this big of a push from Seattle out of the gate. I think they're ready for it now. I think they're dialed in. I think the Avs are in a good spot. But I really do. I genuinely believe, Megan, that that the effort that Seattle brought and and, and the attention to their fine details, like you were mentioning on the forecheck, uh, you know, gapping up, they're, they're closing in, they're closing on pucks really quickly. They're not giving the Avs a lot of time and space. And then give them credit. There's a stick. There's a Seattle stick in every Colorado passing lane. Even through game three, the Avs had to work to connect on passes. They had to, you know, they had to get a couple strokes of luck, like Daniel Sprong falling down. You know, like the Avs are having to take advantage because Seattle is executing a very good game plan. Um, and I think that caught the Avs off guard out of the gate, genuinely. I, I think they were prepared for it. I think the coaching staff got them ready for it. It looked to me like the players weren't expecting that. You know, that they were maybe just going to lay down for the defending Stanley Cup champs a bit. And the Avs kind of had to work through that. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought with, with where I was going with this point, but you know, it's, it's the abs needed to lean on. We've been here before. We can kind of take that racing emotion out of it because we know this is a marathon and, and we just have to settle down and play our game. And I think you've seen now in the back half of game two and into game three, that's really where Seattle is lacking. I heard you talking on the post game show the other night. I think a lot of their experienced guys have been the ones that have stepped up for them. Schwartz, ones who have yeah. you know, done this you know, for, for other teams. 
uh, you know, who, who I think have been able to settle into these games a little bit better. Um, but look, you need the whole team pulling the rope in the same direction. And I just think, uh, you know, game two, game three, we'll see what happens tonight. You know, the abs, I think, kind of got them on the run a little bit here. Uh, you know, I think you've got Seattle starting to feel the pressure. And I think they're really going to feel the pressure tonight, right? Trying to avoid going down three to one. You want to get a win in front of your home crowd because you know if you lose tonight, you may not be coming back to this building this year. It may not be till next season that you get to play in front of these fans again. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure, pressure that Seattle's putting on themselves tonight. And we're going to see if the veteran Avalanche team can take advantage of that because that's how they're going to get through this series. You're right, Megan. Seattle's got the depth advantage. They just do. I was looking at this Avs lineup the other night. This is no knock on the guys in the bottom six. This isn't the same group that it was last year. They're not as deep. They don't have those same luxuries that the Avs had last season, but they have the high-end talent, and we saw what this looks like when that high-end talent is shining through. Seattle's got no answer for it. They've got no answer for Nathan McKinnon when he gets going like he did the other night. Miko Ranton and I thought really, really struggled two nights ago. I thought the through 40 minutes, that was probably his worst game of the series. Just not effort-based. Just he didn't have it. Just wasn't his night. You know, pucks were rolling off his stick. Uh, he made a really rough read on, on the uh, Jamie Alexiak goal. Goes into the locker room. He says, take a deep breath calm down. You'll get the next one. He goes out, he gets the next one. And then Nathan McKinnon does what Nathan McKinnon does. Seattle's got no answer when those top guys are rolling like that. The Avs have to weather the storm that you know Seattle's going to push back a couple times, you know, every game. And you got to just, you got to win the battles that, that, that you know you're winning and that's at the top of your lineup. Um, so like I said, tonight's going to be really, really interesting because I think Seattle is maybe going to have a little bit of that kind of manic urgency that the Avs had at the start of game two. It's like, we have to score. We have to win. We have to get out to a lead. We have to give this, this crowd something to cheer about. And if the Avs can kind of stay calm, remain in control, I think they're going to put themselves in a good spot to kind of let that, that veteran leadership shine through, and that veteran experience shine through. And I think that's where, you know, we, we talked about it with the last number of years. You don't bet against Tampa. This Avalanche team is starting to, end, to wade into that territory, Megan, of, you just don't bet against these guys. This is an overarching theme for any Stanley Cup contending team, but being able to channel urgency into something productive is something that is difficult to do and why experienced teams are particularly good at it, teams like a Tampa. This is where it's going to be interesting for Seattle to see how they channel the desperation of what Game 4 means to them into something productive. Because I even think there was an urgency behind game one. It just didn't translate to something productive until game two. It took a minute for the Avs to reconcile that. And so because Seattle has some experienced players, but some players that are new to the playoff environment, I'm really curious to see how Seattle responds tonight. And I don't want to underestimate them either. I think that they have come looking like a more experienced group than I expected. And so this could be something that poses a real challenge for Colorado, and I'm excited to see what that looks like. Well, look, they, they've shown that, Megan, you said it a minute ago, they have a game plan for this series, and they're executing it at a high level. Uh, you know, it's taken the abs, you know, entering into that kind of, you know, kind of ramped up gear, leaning on that experience for them to find an edge here. So give massive credit to Seattle. I think they've been fantastic through three games. Uh, you know, especially as a, as a seven seed, Jared Bednar pointed out, this is a hundred point team. Like they really didn't finish all that far behind the abs uh, points standings wise. Um, and so this is a good team. Yeah. You're, you're not expecting a laydown. I, I just, it did feel like in the back half of that game two, and then for a lot of game three that the abs really were just kind of the more seasoned team. I feel like the sun is starting to wash me out a bit. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to move away from my nice backdrop here. And instead you guys are going to get the, uh, the, the, the lovely curtain background. There's sunbeams in the shot that kind of gave an angelic look. <laughs> I am very angelic. I, I will say that. There we go. That's better. This next part, too, 
we can kind of speed run through and focus on anything that our hearts really desire. But I wanted to talk a little bit about how the playoffs are shaping out as a whole. This has been an interesting weekend in hockey. All eight road teams, including the Colorado Avalanche, win this weekend. We've sort of talked about the parody in the NHL, how this is just where we're at. This is a competitive league where even seventh seed teams are going to be competitive in the Stanley Cup playoffs. They're here for a reason. Every team's here for a reason. And I think it's just made for some really entertaining series. I don't know if there's one that stands out to you that you want to talk about first. Well, so what, what I first and foremost want to say, I, I want to just talk a little bit about what you were uh, just mentioning there, Megan, about how close a lot of these series have been. And the first thing that I noticed was <clears throat> it feels like, and now both series are three to one, um, but you know, everyone talked about the East and, you know, just, just how much better the East is than the West. <clears throat> and, you know, these teams are, <clears throat> excuse me, just on a different level and look out. I think the Western conference games have been way better than the Eastern conference, uh, so far, you know, I, I feel like there's been a lot more blowouts in the East. Uh, you know, <clears throat> Florida, I thought has played actually a few good games, but Boston is, um, you know, ended up coming out up three to one there. Carolina and the Islanders up three to one. None of the games have really been all that entertaining. Uh, it took us till game three to get an interesting one between uh, the Rangers and the Devils. Uh, and then <clears throat> games one, game two, Tampa and Toronto were just trading blowouts. Uh, and, and really, I think if you look around the West, we've had some fantastic games so far, uh, double overtimes, comebacks, things like that, um, through, you know, we're heading into the, the, the half the league has already played four games. The other half of the league will, will play their fourth game tonight. Uh, and I think the West has been a lot better so far. Have, have do you have any thoughts or opinions on that's where I, I pulled the series from that I'm most interested in they are in the west and <clears throat> I think that well and not exclusively but certainly a lot of recurring themes there but you talk about Toronto and Tampa Bay and I think that has been an extremely fun one because we I still like Tampa Bay they look very evenly matched is maybe where I'm going with this um mm -hmm. We talked, you know, if there was a year for Toronto to do it, it feels like this year, but Tampa Bay is just as much in it. Those game one and game twos are just two huge blows back and forth. They emerge from the rubble and have a more evenly matched game three, but there's a lot of tensions that are rising. I think through each of these series, two storylines are brewing that make for really fun playoff hockey because these are teams that are now consecutively playing each other and they're building resentment towards each other and you're seeing it boil over onto the ice in really terse moments that are going to make for interesting hockey moving forward. Well, so what was nice was that we, like Hockey Jesus did us some favors with some of these matchups, right? So to your point, Toronto and Tampa, they played last year, it went seven, it was nasty, it was mean and it ends with Tampa coming out on top and kind of continuing this saga with Toronto, right? And so we get it again this year. So there's already a little bit of animosity there. Uh, we get New Jersey and New York. So there's just like some natural kind of bad blood there. Um, so I, I, I'm with you. We, we've, we've had some great series where you really are starting to, to feel that, that kind of uh, bad blood boil over. And it's, it's what this whole, the way that they do the, the, the playoff bracket that everybody but Gary Bettman hates. Um, this is what he claims, right? Oh, it builds rivalries, it builds rivalries, it builds rivalries. We haven't really felt that, you know, cause it's hard to build a rivalry in the first round, right? Who really cares about the first round? But to your point, I, I just think some of these matchups, the way that they fell, there was just some natural kind of bad blood coming into it. So it's been fun. Um, Minnesota, Dallas, and then Edmonton, LA, I definitely think have been the two series that I've watched the most closely. Um, outside of the Avs series, of course. And I just think the games have been fantastic. Uh, they've been mean. 
They've been nasty. They've been, uh, you know, entertaining, I believe. I'm double-checking this. So, Edmonton, L.A., yep. Through four games, three one-goal games, three overtime games, and one game where Edmonton wins by two with an empty netter. There's been lead changes. There's been big hits. There's been players playing through injury. The series have just been – that series has just been outstanding. The L.A. Kings look like they might – have an answer for Connor McDavid here. Like he's been maybe maybe concerningly quiet if you're the LA Kings. He's been a little too quiet through four games. Um, you, you know, I think if you're the Kings, you're hoping that he doesn't, you know, wake up and just start breaking down, do uh, breaking down doors. But like th they've done a great job of shutting him down. Um, that to me has definitely been uh, the most interesting series to watch just in terms of, you know, how the fine details are breaking out. Because like I said, you got comebacks. You got three overtime games out of four so far. I have that in my note too, the close goal margin in this series specifically, because there have been like with the Toronto Tampa games, huge mm -hmm. differences in the goal scored game by game. Whereas these have been close between Edmonton and LA. And I don't want to say people underestimated LA, but I do think people weren't expecting LA to have totally. quite the solution for the high octane offense that Edmonton has because it has been high volume shots distributed by Edmonton but LA has had really good shot selection they have been working with in the hash marks pretty well and they're getting like it's it's kind of a testament to their depth too is where I think that they're getting these close net front chances it's spread out a little bit throughout their lineup um I love to see Trevor Moore with the controversial overtime goal uh what did, you, what, what, what did you think on that? I think the conclusion that it's inconclusive is the right one. I agree. Truthfully, I have watched several different angles. I know this is probably controversial to continue talking about, but I'm not certain it hits the stick. I know there's a lot of people who very feel very sure that it did, but I'm genuinely not certain of that. Just based on how many times I've seen it, I can't say conclusively that it does. And even if it does the argument of it hitting Ekholm's body on the way down is still factored in all of that. Right. There's just too much gray area in there for me to say, yes, one way or the other, this is what happened. I, I, there's one angle that it looks like it hits his stick. There's one angle that I can see where I say that looks more than 50% like it hits his stick, you know, 50% assuredness. And then I'll see two other angles where I'm like, well, from those angles, I feel more than 50% assuredness that it didn't hit his stick. And then there's a bunch where you just can't tell at all. Um, you know, I think the people who argue the rotation of the puck, I, I kind of throw that argument out the window because when I watch it, that puck's, you know, rotating in the air and it's kind of flipping and spinning and really it never looks like it breaks rotation. You know, yes, it changes the direction that it's rotating, but never looks like it slows down. It never like hard pops back the other way or anything like that. I'm with you. I, I, I thought it was inconclusive. And then you add in the gray area of it hitting Ekholm's back. And I know people made the assertion, well, that's not possession. According to the rule book, and, and the verbiage around high sticking, the verbiage makes it sound like, yes, if it just glances off Ekholm's back, it's a wash. I Not think, a high stick. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at with it. I understand why when it's the playoffs, having gray area is frustrating. It's honestly been true for a few different games. I think officiating's been called into question a couple times here, but... For the Edmonton LA series, it's huge that LA gets Kevin Fiala back to assist in his return. And it's interesting too that I think both teams have received pretty equal goaltending, in my opinion. So it is kind oh, of I turned think it LA's over. LA's has been way better. LA's has been better. I'm looking at too, like the Corpusala looked so good. Um, and the overtime winner from Zach Hyman was just, oh, he just was beat. Like it was just. One, terrific stretch pass for him to even receive. 
to make mm -hmm. this possible. And he just beat him clean. Like I actually thought Corpusalo played so well in this game. So what's been interesting about this series for me is I, I think you were spot on a second ago, Megan, that, you know, Edmonton has had the much higher volume of shots on goal, but I really do think that LA has done a good job of giving them the shots that they want to give them, right? And I think Corpus Allo has been really, really solid. Really solid. That overtime goal last night uh, with, against Zach Hyman, that was, that was bad. That was a bad one for sure. But really, Megan, what, what the part for me that, like you said, not necessarily people underestimating LA, but the part that I felt a lot of people overlooked with LA. One, Victor Arvidsson and Drew Doughty were injured last year for this Edmonton LA series. They didn't have either of those guys come game seven. Drew Doughty missed the entire series. So you're down those two guys. You needed one goal. You needed, you needed one goal. You needed one win in those last couple games against Edmonton and they couldn't get it. LA couldn't. And that's what led to the Oilers getting out of there in game seven. And then on top of that, you didn't have Jonas Corposalo. And then on top of that, you didn't even have Kevin Fiala. That's four major contributors to the LA Kings that weren't on this team last year that I felt like a lot of people just really didn't acknowledge. Like, oh yeah, well, Edmonton got better this year. So did LA. LA couldn't match the goal scoring in last year's first round series with the Kings. Plus Arvidsson, plus Drew Doughty, plus Kevin Fiala, plus Gabe Velarde. That's a lot more offensive punch that this team didn't have last year. And they've just been able to go blow for blow better with Edmonton than maybe people thought. Stack on top of that, that Andre Kopitar and Philip Deneau have had great series so far to this point. You got to be feeling pretty confident heading in, uh, you know, to, uh, to game five if you're LA. Hey, yeah, we know we're tied, but we've shown at bare minimum, well, you can hang right in here with this group. I want to amend, I think you're right, that Corpusalo has been the better of the two goaltenders. I think where I'm going with it is that Stuart Skinner hasn't been the biggest issue, in my opinion, for Edmonton. I think defensively, where we thought that they had become more well-rounded, we're seeing the exposure of still some shortcomings that is hurting Edmonton in a big way. And it's not to pin squarely on the defense or the goaltender in that situation. I think Stuart Skinner has been kind of too expectation, in my opinion. Yes. But the defense is maybe where it has fallen a little bit short for Edmonton in this series. So here's what I'll say that to me, if you're someone who has money on Edmonton, is an Edmonton fan, if you're pulling for them in any way, here's what's concerning for the Oilers. Through all of this, whether it's the goalie, you know, Stuart Skinner or Jack Campbell, and now it becomes a question of who do you go to? Right. Whether it's them, like you said, the defense, maybe just not quite being. Here's what's concerning with Edmonton. Through all the changes, everything we've heard about, they're still trying to outscore their problems. It's still way too much McDavid to Dreisaitl on the power play. Needing power play, you know, last night, I, I believe two of the three were dry sidle on the power play uh, to, to get him tied. And then I believe the fourth one in the, oh, no, no, that one was at six on five. They, they, they're still needing the man advantage to score. And this is the problem. This is what was supposed to be fixed. They weren't supposed to be having to outscore their issues. The defense was supposed to be more well-rounded. Stuart Skinner, you know, Edmonton fans wanted him as, as the Calder Trophy winner, right? They were looking at him as, oh, we have the, we finally have the solution in that. All of that stuff, and really we're kind of heading into game five saying they have to outscore their issues. I think I had that note too, like Dreisaitl, points leader for Edmonton, nine points in four games, four of which I believe come on the power play. It does point to an issue then if they can only score with the man advantage. Connor McDavid got his first even strength point of the series last night. Like, like this is the part for me that's concerning about this Edmonton team. And, and, and hilariously, I actually think if they can get out of this first round series, they'll probably go back to the Western Conference final because I just don't think that um, either Vegas or uh, Winnipeg are, are defensively sound enough to shut down uh, McDavid, or Dry, McDavid and Dreisaitl in the same way that LA is. But like, I'm just looking at this and I'm saying, 
I just don't think this is a cup team. We're still doing this. We're still doing it. All the changes, all the money that's been doled out, all the assets that have been doled out for players that at the end of the day, it's still just, oh, shit. Connor, Leon, do you think you can just go out there and score some more goals for us? And, and, and that's concerning for me if I'm Edmonton. Definitely. They, they still are certainly such a problem. Like, honestly, the top six in general – Hyman, Nugent Hawkins, McDavid, Dreisaitl together pose such a problem, such a threat. There's, but it's back to the well-rounded component we talk about with so many of these teams that there's still a few things it seems like expose a weak side, an Achilles heel for this Edmonton team. We saw it in the Western Conference final, right? They came up against a team that really had the horses to kind of neutralize that top six, whether it be through just shutting them down or being able to go blow for blow. And when it got into the, the depths of the lineup, Edmonton just didn't have an answer. They couldn't just survive. You know, like the, the, the bottom six couldn't just wait till McDavid got back out there. And, and to me, if I'm Edmonton, it's very concerning that through four games, I feel like I'm in a pretty similar spot. Absolutely. Well, we've done it again. I think we'll have to wind down the show here. Um, okay. And, and circle back to some of these other things a little bit later. Once you get back into town, too, I'm sure we could see how this series shakes out and if we can bring some more content this week, I guarantee that much at least. Like, we'll have more content coming out. Yeah, I was going to say, we'll, we'll have more stuff because, honestly, Megan, I, I've been... I've just been waiting for the playoffs to get here all year. This has been a long year. It's, it's been a slog, uh, you know, especially with all the injuries to the abs and all that stuff. It's been a lot to keep up with, but I really have. I've enjoyed these last two weeks so much just getting to kind of sink back into playoff hockey. There's plenty to talk about. Uh, so, yeah, so one way or another, we'll have, we'll have more stuff coming later this week. Awesome. Well, I hope you enjoy the game tonight. I hope the atmosphere is just as electric as it was for game three. And that's DNVR Avalanche After Ring Podcast. I'm Megan Ingley. This is Jesse Montano. You can follow along, too, with Jesse Montano on Twitter for more in-game updates as Head things go along. Head to morning skate here in just a minute. Morning skate updates. Hopefully, hopefully we have a little bit more information on what sort of players will be available for tonight. Darren Helm, that kind of thing. <clears throat> and, and Megan, I'm, I, I am really sorry. I, I just I have to mention this, and, and I, I know Yaya is going to yell at me for, for, for going past our time here. Yeah, I said we, we, I'm okay. Okay, we, 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 can't end, we can't end this show without acknowledging the Balmachushkin situation. Um, I just didn't want people to think that, that we're avoiding talking about it. Um, so look, here's, here's what I'm going to give based on, on my knowledge of the situation. Um, so Val Nichushkin is, is as of what we know, we may get back over to the rink and he could be there. You know, that's how fluid this situation is to my understanding. We don't know a timetable for Val Nichushkin. Um, I've done quite a bit of digging on this. Um, I feel fairly confident in kind of my knowledge of where this situation is at. I can say with a fair bit of confidence, I haven't gotten this hard, hard, hard confirmed yet, and I'm hoping to have uh, more information on this today. I, I can say with a fair, fair bit of confidence, this is, has nothing to do with Russia, has nothing to do with their government or you know any of these digital draft notices that people are kind of floating around. This has nothing to do with that. This to me, from what I know, is a very personal matter uh, for, for Val Nichushkin. And, and it's something that, uh, I, you know, again, for, for what I know, I get why he, he had to step away from, from, from the team right now. Uh, like I said, th this is definitely a, a, a personal matter for him, uh, that, that he had to, you know, go get some things, you know, make sure that things are, are, are on the right track. Things are good. Um, I'm trying to be as vague as possible here because I don't have, uh, you know, I'm wanting to get some more confirmation on things. Um, but this is definitely one where I would say, let's respect the privacy here. You know, this is, these are personal matters. Um, he, he's stepping away. I have pretty fair reason to believe that, uh, especially if the Avs get out of this round, he will be back. Uh, you know, it's not an injury related thing, nothing like that. Uh, but I just want to be able to dispel a lot of the, the, the Russia stuff that I've seen out there because I have every reason to believe this has nothing to do with that. 
I'm glad you made note of it. I didn't want to put you on the spot by bringing up Val Natushkin. And I think everybody yeah. here wants to treat it delicately because it is very much a private matter. So I appreciate any insight on that. And hopefully we'll get more updates as needed. Like it's not necessarily our business to know the intimate details of a private matter, but just wishing him well right now and hoping he has all the support he needs around him. Yeah, no. And, and I think that's that kind of right there is, is the, is the right kind of thought process on it, Megan, you know, I, I saw some people the last couple of days like, Oh, well, we deserve to know. Nobody has to know what's going on here. If, if kind of what, what, what I'm hearing is even, you know, in the ballpark, yeah, this is this is personal. Let's let him and his family and, and people like that, um, you know, deal with it and, 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 and he'll be back. But um, I, I don't know if you want to say on a positive note, but I, I do. I have seen a lot of speculation out there about Russia and then, you know, the digital draft notice thing kind of started circling away its way around. And um, all I'm willing to say right now is I have zero reason to believe that this has anything to do with anything like that. That's uh, that's good though. I appreciate the update. I think the fan base will really appreciate hearing that much at least is unrelated to this matter. Yeah, and, and, and now I always like to throw the caveat, and you know this, Megan. Like things change, new information comes available, right? You know, there, there's the I can't remember what what show it's from, but you know, I used to think chocolate milk came from brown cows, and then I learned about chocolate syrup, right? So like new information comes available, things change, uh, but as of right now, everything that I've been told that I've heard um, this is not a Russia situation. All right. Well, we'll follow along for more morning skate updates too here in a little bit and gear up for a game four, an exciting game four in Seattle tonight. Awesome. Yeah, looking forward to it.